It was the summer of 1950. For nearly a decade, the number of reports of unidentified flying objects had been skyrocketing. From the Foo Fighters of World War II to the infamous Roswell incident, people around the world were reporting strange aircraft in the night skies. Debate raged about the origins of these objects. Hallucinations? Tricks of the light? Secret Nazi or Soviet projects? Or something from beyond our planetary borders? As skeptics and believers clashed over the origins of these sightings, a small group of scientists from Los Alamos National Laboratory were discussing the mechanics of interstellar travel as they walked to lunch, after Emil Konopinski had brought up a newspaper cartoon he had seen. It depicted a group of aliens stealing trash cans in New York. He thought it was funny, and now Edward Teller and Enrico Fermi were debating the probability of the discovery of faster-than-light travel occurring within a decade. Teller put it at one in a million. Fermi argued one in ten. While Teller can claim the more accurate estimate, it is Fermi who ended up leaving his mark on history that day. As they arrived at the restaurant, the conversation shifted to other topics. But Fermi remained quiet until, midway through their meal, he burst out, But where is everybody? This singular, humorous moment ensured that Fermi would be enshrined not only as a physicist, but as the namesake for today's mystery, the Fermi Paradox. Today, we will be taking a journey through time and space, from near-Earth orbit to the farthest reaches of the Milky Way. We will explore strange worlds and the vastness of the void, and seek to solve the greatest mysteries of the cosmos. This is The Final Frontier. The debate around alien life has generally existed as one of polarity. Either aliens exist and they've visited or contacted us, or they simply don't exist at all. Increasingly, public opinion seems to be shifting towards the first. A 2020 Ipsos poll indicated that approximately two-thirds of Americans believe that alien life exists. 57% believe that said life is intelligent and civilized. But perhaps the most astonishing statistic is the following. 45% believe that extraterrestrials have visited Earth. Think about what that means. If you pick two random people off the street, there's a high likelihood that one of them believes that our cosmic neighbors have already dropped by. As public interest grows, there has been more and more pressure on national governments to declassify whatever information they have on potential interstellar tourists. But what if there just isn't anything to share? By all rights, the math seems to indicate that there should be. A 2012 examination of data collected by the Kepler Space Telescope suggested that just about every single star in our galaxy had at least one planet in its orbit. And while I'm sure you already know that there are a lot of stars, I really want to spend some time on the numbers here so that they can really sink in. Our friend Kepler made some estimates here too. Thanks to a study published in the scientific journal Nature in 2013, we currently have an estimated galactic stellar population of between 100 to 400 billion stars. And while scientists currently cautiously estimate a comparable number of planets, we know that our own solar system contains eight. So unless we're a pretty high outlier, there's a not insignificant chance that the real number is much higher. On the other hand, we also know that of the eight planets in our solar system, 
only one is actually habitable in its current state. Our Earth exists in what's known as the Goldilocks Zone, a narrow orbital band in which the sun provides just enough heat to keep us not too hot and not too cold. We can look at our closest neighbors to see the kinds of perils that exist outside this zone. Mars averages a frigid negative 63 degrees Celsius, while Venus comes in at an incinerating temperature of 453 degrees Celsius. Now, there are other important factors in play on both planets, of course, but it does emphasize well that relatively small differences in orbital distance can produce enormous changes. This leaves an extremely small target for any other planets to hit, a target that likely means that the vast majority of stars do not have planets in this zone. So with all of that in mind, astronomers have come up with an estimate that slashes the number of candidate planets down to a tiny portion of those initial estimates, leaving us with approximately 40 billion. 40 billion planets are sitting in that tiny habitable band around stars. Granted, not all of these planets even have the chance to be habitable, despite their positioning. Some are gas planets, like our own giants. Some will have been ravaged by meteor or asteroid strikes so frequently that no detectable life would have even had the chance to begin. Still others will have been rendered uninhabitable by extreme environmental conditions too harsh for even the most well-adapted extremophiles. But I suspect that you're already understanding the reality of the situation, that even with the most stringent possible criteria, there are almost certainly still hundreds of millions, if not billions, of planets that have fit them all. Knowing all this, it's easy to come to the conclusion that life must exist out there somewhere, which only brings us back to our very first question, where is everyone? If life does, in fact, exist within our own galaxy, why has nobody answered any of our many attempts to make contact, or even just reached out to us themselves? So let's fly into some theories. Now, even though it doesn't directly provide an answer to the Fermi Paradox, I do think it's important to address the theory that there is no paradox. Nearly half of the population subscribes to the theory that aliens have in fact contacted and visited us, but that the various governments of the world have collectively decided to keep this fact hidden from us. The main evidence for this theory, aside from the numerous UFO sightings that have taken place over the years, goes back to all those statistics I provided earlier. And well, the logic is hard to argue against. After all, when you look at those numbers, it seems unthinkable that amidst billions of habitable planets, Earth is the most advanced. It's also a bit terrifying to think that we might be alone, a single planet of consciousness in the vast dark emptiness of the universe. As terrifying as the concept of alien invaders might be, there's something existentially uncomfortable with the idea that there might not be anyone else at all, that Earth is the lone bastion of life. But the easy counter-argument to that is that we simply don't have any real, tangible evidence to support it. And while believers will argue that this is by design, that doesn't really change that reality, and we're still left with the same question we started with. So going forward, we'll be discussing possible explanations under the assumption that we haven't been contacted or visited. The first of these possibilities is one that I've already touched on, that we are, in fact, alone. No matter how tiny the probability, 
it is possible that we are the anomaly. And there's some good reasoning behind this too. Even the formation of the most basic life is a mystery to us, and is a pretty enormous leap. Let's think about the smallest life form known to science, a bacteria called Mycoplasma genitalium. These bacteria are only a bit over half a micrometer at their largest. For reference, that's about 300 times smaller than the width of a human hair. And yet, even these infinitesimally small creatures have a cell structure consisting of a three-layered cell membrane, DNA, RNA, ribosomes, cytoplasm, and various proteins. Each one of these components alone involve complex molecular structures working in concert. Somehow, that came to be on Earth. But how far-fetched is it to say that this process to produce even the smallest organism just may not happen very often elsewhere, if at all? We still don't know exactly how it started on our own planet, despite constant research and efforts to reproduce the circumstances that led to it. These same arguments can be used to support a series of spin-off possibilities. The farther we climb up the hierarchy of life, the smaller the chances become. To find multicellular organisms would be even less likely than single-cell organisms. To find complex plants or animals, even less likely. And to find intelligent life, even less so than that. One can continue extrapolating even beyond this stage to include the stages of development of civilization, or higher technology, or space travel. At each stage, we reach increasing levels of uncertainty that anything like it may exist. And yet, we're still dealing with some fraction of 40 billion potentially habitable planets. Even if only 1% of that hosts any form of life, that's still 400 million. One thousandth of that is still 40 million, and so on. What I'm trying to get at is that even slashing the numbers with reckless abandon, we're still left with an enormous amount of planets that could be supporting life, or even civilizations. For me, at least, these numbers are just too significant to ignore. I can say with confidence that I believe that life does exist beyond our planet, in some form. And that's the assumption that the rest of these theories work from. Once you move past the question of whether or not intelligent life exists, you really start to get into some interesting theories. In my experience, they tend to fall into one of two categories, capabilities or motivations. We'll start with capabilities. Theories that focus on the capabilities all end with the same result. Even if civilizations are out there, they are incapable of contacting us. So what else is there to say? That seems pretty straightforward. But the question of why these civilizations may be incapable of making contact is what's most critical here, not only for our potential alien acquaintances, but also for us. The simplest of these possibilities is that, much like us, any other civilizations out there just don't have the technology to reach us yet. Whether they are more or less advanced than we are, the distances we're dealing with in space are almost incomprehensibly large, and even the most powerful communications equipment we currently know of has no way of beating the cosmic speed limit, the speed of light. Right now, even if we used some sort of super precise laser to fire off a message to our closest stellar neighbor, Alpha Centauri, it would take over four years for that message to reach its destination. Outside of that, 
There are barely a dozen stars even within 10 light years, and the distances only go up from there. And that's just for the privilege of blinking a light. To transfer any significant data would take much longer, and inevitably lose fidelity over that distance, if it even reached at all. And all that is to say nothing of actually transporting physical objects or people. Currently, the most scientifically plausible theories about interstellar travel don't involve any warp drives or hyperspace. The two schools of thought for making it a reality are either sending something really, really small somewhere really, really fast, or sending something absolutely enormous somewhere really, really slowly. A project called Breakthrough Starshot is currently attempting the first, with the goal of essentially shotgun blasting a bunch of paperclip-sized solar sail chips to Proxima Centauri B with a 100 gigawatt laser. These chips would have to survive a decades-long journey across the void while somehow managing to avoid being thrown off course, being damaged or destroyed by the smallest particles of dust, being fried by cosmic rays, or just being straight-up melted by the initial laser burst. And all of this comes at the low, low cost of well over a billion dollars. You did hear me correctly. Over a billion dollars to shoot a flimsy speck of foil and silicone into space for 30 or so years in the hopes of getting a signal back four years after that. The cost and the risk are both enormous. The other school of thought is that of the huge and slow. Right now, this is the only conceivable way for humans to reach any other solar system, like Proxima Centauri B as well, given that it's the closest. I do want to preface this by noting that slow in space isn't like slow on the ground. The starships that could potentially make this journey could probably reach speeds at, or greater than, the speeds of deep space probes like Pioneer or Voyager. Voyager 1, the fastest of them, has managed to surpass speeds of 60,000 kilometers per hour. So, if we can get a ship full of people pointed towards Proxima Centauri, they'll get there in approximately... 80,000 years. I guess it may be more likely to say that their descendants will, barring some sort of development in human stasis. Let's just pause a moment and consider that number. 80,000 years. In Christian belief, Jesus only came here 2,000 years ago. 5,000 years ago, humanity was just starting to make its way out of the Stone Age. 15,000 years ago, we were just beginning to figure out how to domesticate livestock. And the oldest permanent human settlement we know of was built around 25,000 years ago. Now, I know I've been saying this a lot, but think about that. In the time it took humans to advance from building the earliest known permanent settlement to being able to travel the space... A ship traveling at the speed of Voyager 1 would make it not quite a third of the way to Proxima Centauri B. And that leaves so many questions, namely, what would the point even be? If humanity survives and continues developing as it has been, will interest even remain in colonizing another solar system? Conversely, might it be so easy and simple at that point that any ship traveling so slowly would be rendered completely obsolete? And what of the people on the ship? If they managed to survive and continued to raise new generations, would the generation that finally arrived even want to leave it? After 80,000 years of that ship being their home, their culture, history, and experience would have entirely evolved in an environment off-planet. What's to say they'd even want to leave at that point? 
There are so many different possibilities and factors here that make one wonder if this would even be worth it for anything other than an experiment to see how such a civilization would develop, instead of any sort of true attempt at colonization or exploration. Now, I could do an entire episode exploring these possibilities, so I'm just going to leave it at that for now. But I'm sure by now you understand just how complicated an endeavor interstellar travel actually is, no matter how you approach it. Assuming aliens haven't found some way to break physics, they'd inevitably have to deal with all of these same questions and challenges. There's just no way around them that we know of. Even if the hypothetical Proxima Centaurians had the tech to send a ship here twice as fast, and a 20,000 year head start on us, it would still be another 20,000 years before they got here. The distances and times we're dealing with are just so far beyond our human comprehension. Humanity's current collective space programs would be a blip in history by the time we got there, or they got to us. Further complicating matters is the simple fact that we are here. Think of it this way. If you're planning a long-term colonization operation of another planet, what sorts of things would you want to know about it? For me, the first things that come to mind would, unsurprisingly, be water and air. But both of those things are extremely hard to 100% confirm over these distances, and there is zero room for guesswork. With the cost and effort going into a program like this, any margin of error is too large. So you would invest every bit of time and effort you had into developing the most powerful telescopes, sensors, and maybe even some of those teensy, nigh-undetectable solar sail probes to give you some definitive answers. I think you can see where I'm going with this. Even if you're not setting out specifically to detect the existence of a civilization, you almost certainly would in the lead-up to a project like this. And if you do, well, there's a pretty good chance that you look elsewhere. Why risk your investment by sending it to a planet that may fight you, or destroy itself before you arrive, or even just politely send you on your way to wander the stars aimlessly. Even if you're more advanced right now, by the time 80,000 years have passed, there's a good chance that technology on any species' homeworld has advanced more than it could on a spaceship with limited resources. We know space has plenty of empty planets. If I was in charge of an interstellar colonization effort, well, I'd definitely rather aim for one of those. Now that we're beginning to discuss possibilities that mix capability with behavior, let's just take a brief diversion into something that sits right in the middle of that, the concept of alienness, or more simply, how different something is from us. The strange reality of our media is that, for both practical and creative reasons, nearly every famous alien race in science fiction could be described as humanoid. Vulcans, Klingons, Twi'lek, Zabrak are all great examples of quote-unquote aliens that are, at least in most depictions, just humans with a single distinguishing feature, be it pointy ears or horns on their head. But even some of the most alien creatures still maintain some recognizable human features. For example, the xenomorph from the film Alien is purposefully designed as a macabre mixture of warped human features. It has a very human-like ribcage, two arms, two legs, and even a human skull inside its oblong head. Jabba the Hutt, who is a giant slug creature, was still designed with arms, hands, and a face featuring two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. 
While there are certainly exceptions, the aliens we create for our own consumption are almost always self-portraits on a grand scale. More importantly for us, the aliens people tend to report having contact with fit these molds as well. Think your classic tall, thin, gray alien with a huge head. Or, you know, the stereotypical little green men. In combination, these stories create a common conscious or subconscious assumption that aliens will, in fact, be like us, at least to some degree. We assume that there must be certain recognizable features, but the reality is that we just don't know. There are many assumptions we make based on those stories and on the common features of life on Earth, but the on-Earth part is pretty key. All terrestrial fauna on Earth developed within a relatively small set of environmental parameters. Similar gravity, temperature ranges, and common ancestors, no matter how distant, have led to the propagation of a relatively standard set of features. So while we have a good understanding of what life that developed on Earth will be like, and what things it may need, that won't necessarily be the case elsewhere. So let's take a quick trip back to Proxima Centauri b. Based on estimates of its mass, and assuming a similar density to Earth, most of them put it at around 1.1 g on its surface. It gets some bonus points for sitting within the presumed habitable zone of its star, Proxima Centauri. So that's great, right? Proper levels of heat and light, easy enough gravity, it's very doable except for one minor detail. Proxima Centauri is a red dwarf. Red dwarf stars are known for their volatility. They blast out much higher levels of radiation and have a higher frequency of solar flares than our sun. Both of these could pose tremendous risk for a nearby planet. Assuming a comparable atmosphere to ours, a severe radiation flare from the star could strip away up to 94% of the planet's ozone layer, exposing anything on the surface to dangerous levels of radiation. This leaves us with a somewhat stark reality. Life on Proxima Centauri b is either non-existent or strongly adapted to intense radiation. On Earth, we've found certain strains of bacteria, like Deinococcus radiodurans, that thrive in radioactive environments, while some bugs manage to hang in there as well. But large animals like us? Well, we've already got plenty of evidence about how that usually goes. All of this is to say that the sort of alien life we encounter among the stars may be so vastly different from us that we can't even fully imagine it right now. Its level of intellect, its values, its desires, they may not even point it towards the stars. For all we know, it may not even be aware of the stars, regardless of any of this. We just don't know. And that's what brings us to motivations. Humanity has always been a complex species of exploration and expansion, discovery and fear of the unknown, collaboration and war. We move mountains to achieve our goals, but also often act contrary to our stated aims on both the macro and micro levels. Every potential species out there could be very similar or very different. We may find a collectivist species that believes that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, 
or one that believes that its honor is predicated on war and combat. Even two species with the exact same motivations could choose to focus outward or inward depending on the circumstances of their existence. Some may believe they are trapped in a dark forest, surrounded by hunters waiting to snuff them out, while others may be preparing to boldly go where none have gone before. This is a realm of speculation, of endless possibilities, and one that we won't understand until, one way or another, for better or for worse, we meet them. And this is where I'll be leaving you for this week. Today, we stand on the precipice of discovery, ready to explore the mysteries of the universe. I hope you will continue to join me as we venture out into the final frontier.